all of that unknown gave me so much good. Like it just, it built my relationship with the higher power. It gave me this blind faith that I didn't have before that, that I still have today. I gained so many tools from all of that unknown. There were so many benefits within not knowing. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Abby Fickley. Abby is a content creator, a YouTuber, a mom, and has been sober for over five years. And today, we are going to dive deep into her incredibly inspiring story of recovery. Today on the show, we discuss how Abby's dad pressing felony drug charges against her saved her life, how she stayed resilient during early recovery after her life fell apart, why her struggles with mental health and postpartum led to her addiction, why losing custody of her daughter wasn't the most painful part of her journey, how she overcame the victim mindset, why she stopped going to 12-step meetings, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Abby Fickley to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Abby, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'd love to jump right in. I would love to know how you've managed to stay sober. Like, What have you done to stay sober for over five years without going to AA or being involved in a 12-step program? So I do have to credit the program for early sobriety. It definitely got me on my feet. I have a lot of respect for the community. Uh, so in the beginning, AA is actually what I would say saved my life just because I have been to treatment so many times and I have tried every single avenue of getting sober or at least what I knew of or what was offered to me, you know, anywhere from a faith-based program to you know, going to meetings, but not working steps to just detoxing on my own and just being a dry drunk, essentially. Um, and I would get a little bit of sobriety here and there, little stints, but nothing would ever last. Um, and the final time that I went to treatment, which was April of 2018, I had nowhere, you know, I, it, for me, it was my rock bottom. So, you know, I had nobody to call. I had nowhere to go after treatment. My family had completely cut me off at that point. Friends had as well. Nobody was left in my in my corner. So when I was leaving this inpatient, I had no choice but to go into a sober living because I had nowhere else to go. And this sober living had very strict requirements to be able to live there. In addition to paying monthly rent, you had to go to so many meetings a week. You had to not only have a sponsor, but you had to be actively working steps. And they would check in every week with your sponsor to see. So it was very high levels of accountability to live in this in this sober living. And I, you know, it was important for me to have a place to live and a roof over my head. And I really wanted to do it this time. And there was a lot more going on, which I'm sure we'll get into, but I was dealing with some legal issues. And so like, I really wanted to do it right. I really wanted to stay sober. So I did everything that they had me do. And just as a result, it just, it worked for me um, by the grace of God, you know, working the steps and going to so many meetings and just being a part of this community where I finally was forced into this corner where I had no choice but to form relationships with women in the program, which I had never done before because I still had relationships like old friends, my family, 
And I was relying on those people for so long to try to get sober and stay sober because that was comfortable. I knew those people already. It was uncomfortable for me to, you know, create relationships with girls in the house or sponsors or just respectable, sober people. And it forced me to do that for the first time in my life. And so, you know, I mean, I've been sober ever since, which is a blessing. So for the first few years, it was AA. Um, COVID is when that really changed, really just because meetings went virtual. I started doing them and I just I wasn't getting anything out of it the way I would in in in-person meetings. And things stayed like that for a long time. So I was forced to figure out a way to stay sober on a daily basis without those in-person meetups. And naturally, obviously, the world has, you know, gone back to you know, where in-person meetings exist again and people are together and not social distancing. But I just hadn't gone back since because I had just kind of found a new thing that worked for me. And it kind of I don't know if this is a good thing, but it, I wasn't super intentional about it. You know, I was I was talking about sobriety online and right as COVID was happening and I stopped going to meetings. That's also when my online presence began. I started, you know, I downloaded TikTok. I started talking about sobriety and just other hard things in life, mental health things. And helping people that way became um, something that was really good for me. It distracted me from self. It kept me out of myself helping other people. It was a good way to also reach a wider audience. And I just felt it was important. You know, I did struggle a little bit in the beginning with the anonymous thing and talking about things online, but So I started doing that. That was something that was really helpful in staying sober. And then as a result of my online presence, I started getting a lot of gigs uh, speaking at high schools. So that's something that I commonly do. That's another way that I stay sober. So the biggest way for me nowadays is to help other people. It's really the number one way. I obviously, I know that being on TikTok, sharing your story, speaking at schools, that's all amazing. And and being of service is a massive part of the 12 step programs. I know another big part of 12 steps just from, I mean, again, I'm not in 12 step program either. What I've learned to understand is this sense of community accountability, progression, like looking at the hard parts of yourself and figuring out a way to get more comfortable with them and acknowledging them, being aware of them so that you can continue to work on them to just improve your life and recovery and improve life overall. Like, how have you managed to fill that part that, you know, I'm sure was missing when you left um, the 12 step programs? Yeah, it definitely was. Um, Honestly, therapy. Therapy is a huge part of my life. Um, I've always found therapy helpful even before I dealt with addiction. And so now that's another piece or another way where I can just have another person kind of challenge me or point out parts of me, things that are going on that I myself may not be able to identify or work through because as self-aware as I like to believe I am, obviously, you know, I'm jaded in ways. And so it's, it's definitely helpful to have a professional for me. That's therapy is huge. I, I big, big, big fan of therapy. Before we dive more into like the healing part of this and like some of the stuff that you've had to work through to get where you are today, I'd love to just get into your story because I know that what really helped you get sober was having like tons of charges pressed against you, felonies, and just getting into a lot of potential trouble with the law that really forced you to actually take sobriety and recovery seriously. 
But take me back to where things started to take a turn for the worse. I believe you had your daughter. You started to have some struggles like postpartum. Talk about that that and how that was the catalyst for your life beginning to fall apart. Yeah. So mental health issues, it's a really big part of my story. You know, I, I've experienced anxiety. I don't remember a time in my life where I did not have anxiety. As young as I can remember being, I had anxiety. And so it's unfortunate because I didn't, I, for whatever reason, I didn't tell my parents. I don't know why I didn't. I don't know why I didn't feel like I could. And that's a whole it's a whole other story that that has been that needs broke down in therapy. But I have dealt with mental health issues for a really long time. After I had I got pregnant with my daughter in 19, I had her at 20. And um, very quickly after is when I was diagnosed with um, postpartum depression. I just was, you know, I was very young. I was trying to build a career. I was trying to raise a baby and just create this white picket fence life with you know, a man that I had, you know, been seeing for just a couple of months and it just it, all the way around wasn't the best situation. So I was diagnosed and I was prescribed uh, benzos. That was that was their solution for me, which is really unfortunate now looking back and does make me angry just because I really wasn't educated on the drug. I, I wasn't, you know, there were no warnings given. And, and of course, I was only 20 at the time, so I wasn't even of a drinking age yet, but I, I just had no idea the harms of the drug, you know, the potential to get addicted to it, what can happen if you mix it with alcohol. I mean, absolute death sentence in it. And and there were some very near death experiences as a direct result. And so, you know, I, I get this prescription and I take it for the first time and everything is gone. I mean, obviously, right. The anxiety, any negative thought in my head, any feelings of doom, every single issue uh, that I had ever felt had gone away and immediately clung to that for the next, I don't know, years to come. It was the first solution I had ever really experienced. And so it didn't take long before I was running out of the prescription early and trying to find more, you know, outside of a doctor. And just that's when it got a little bit out of control. And that led to meeting not the best kind of people then hanging out with said people and it just kind of snowballed into, you know, I wasn't hanging around the right, you know, so it was, it was just not good. And then also I was only 20 and I was really struggling with this whole being a mom thing, especially in a time in my life where I felt I was supposed to be figuring out who I am, what I want to do with my life, having fun, making mistakes. But I kind of didn't, get that opportunity because I had a child now and there was a life that I needed to take care of and there was priority over me. And that's just why you don't have kids that young. I mean, when you're not ready and I was not ready. And so that really set me back. Having a child that young, I was not prepared for how complicated it was going to be. And so the combination of motherhood, mental illness, and yeah, being prescribed a a band-aid essentially of a medication that's never going to cure me was just, yeah, it got bad. It got really, really bad until eventually, um, you know, somewhere in this phase, the father of my child and I, we had split up. I had moved back in with my mom and dad and I continued to go downhill with the substance abuse until finally my parents kicked me out. So, you know, and then things of course get worse from there before I finally go to treatment for the first time. What was your day-to-day like with your daughter in in the midst of all of this? Because I can imagine 
that you you weren't really able to connect with her in the way that you tr- probably had truly wanted to, given this path that you had started to go down. So talk about like what your relationship with your daughter was like during the first few years of of not only her life but of this you know treacherous path that you were starting to go down. Yeah, it's that's that's probably one of the most gut wrenching parts, especially with that particular substance, because there's just so much that I don't remember, which is very unfortunate and hard to admit. But yeah, it was really just about survival. When I look back, I I think for a really, really, really long time, my life was just fight or flight. And, you know, regardless of any substance being involved, fight or flight alone gives me memory issues because I'm just trying so hard to survive that I'm not like processing things. I'm not present. I'm unable to comprehend things and I'm just like going. And that was really what my life was like. So as long as I had a substance to help me get up and be a good mom and take care of my kid, that unfortunately was the priority because I needed that to then be able to do the things that I needed to do. And so, you know, in my brain, there's always, and this is just kind of how addiction is, but it just, it, your life revolves around it. Everything you do in your day to day revolves around this substance and what time you take it and do you have it or do you need to go get more? And, and so I remember a lot of early motherhood being that, like making sure that I had what I needed so that I could be a mom. And then from there, I mean, I was trying to we would play a lot. I cooked, you know, dinners every night. I was going through a phase where I wanted to try new things that I had never cooked before. And, and so I was, I was doing these things. I was doing the laundry. I was cooking the dinner. I was, I was playing with my daughter. The problem was it was just, none of it was real, you know, because I needed the substance to be able to do it. So from the outside looking in, I was doing all of the things a mom does. Um, but of course there was a lack of connection. Um, I couldn't even connect with myself, let alone another human being, you know, and of course we still did have a bond. I mean, it was always just her and I before I went to treatment. And, and so, you know, a lot of fight or flight. I don't remember a lot. I was still being productive because of the substance though. I was, I was relying on it, but yeah. And I know at one point you ended up losing custody of your daughter and you mentioned that you, you went to rehab for the first time, like what age were you when you first went to to rehab? And then when did you like, how did this all tie into you losing custody of your daughter? Yeah, so I actually uh, willingly gave up rights just because I knew that she deserved that. And so my parents, after they kicked me out, I was kind of living with whoever was doing the same things I was doing. And at this point, it was still benzos and alcohol. Yeah, I started dabbling a little bit with um, opiates, uh, pills, yeah, a little bit here and there, but I had never, interestingly enough, up to this point, I, I had never known what it was like to be physically dependent to a substance. Even with the way I was abusing the Xanax, I have never gone through intense benzo withdrawals. Like looking back, I'm sh- like, I remember times where I felt sick, but thought I was sick, like thought I had a cold because I mean, I was so clueless to the world of addiction. I had no idea what, what detoxing was like. I didn't understand that you could become dependent. So I'm sure there were some times where I was experiencing withdrawal symptoms from the benzos and I really just didn't know it. But yeah, for the most part, I was still doing benzos. Um, I was mixing it with alcohol. I was wrecking cars. To this day, I am just so thankful that I've never hurt another person. Just some of my 
darkest moments that I'm I'm so not proud of. But yeah, started dabbling with opiates, uh, Percocet, uh, which was you know provided by the people that I was hanging around with. And then at this point, my parents gave me an ultimatum: go to treatment, or like we just will not be in your life. And they were also kind of starting a process where they were going to the court to like temporarily just get like guardianship of my daughter. They were looking to begin the steps of protecting Myla, my daughter, um, as I was going downhill. So for about a month, I was stuck in this stubborn phase of they're crazy. I don't need rehab. I'm going to pull it together and I'm going to show them. And so I went through that for about a month, but life just continued to go downhill and so I remember just waking up one morning and in some random house, I felt horrible. I was hungover. I just, like physically just beaten. I mean, I had bruises. I just, I looked like shit. I felt like shit. I hadn't taken care of myself in a really long time. And I was just, I was at my rock bottom for, for that moment. Um, Cause there were plenty of rock bottoms, but I did call my mom that morning and I, and really here's the thing. I struggled ever feeling like my parents were there for me emotionally, which is a whole other story. But I don't even know if I I was ready for rehab at that time or needed rehab at that time. Because like I said, I wasn't physically dependent to anything. Sure, I clearly had a substance abuse issue. But really, I, I never got basic support from my mom or dad. Just like, hey, I think I might need some help here. I'm really going through it. I mean... You know, I don't, I don't know, but they're, they, they wanted to send me away to treatment. And, and so I do, I go to California, I fly across the country and I go to rehab. How old are you at this point? Uh, 22. Yeah. 21 going into 22. Um, I just going in there, I, the biggest thing I can remember is just, I felt so out of place. I mean, everybody was sick. Everybody was detoxing. Everybody was talking about substance and the things people talk about in rehab. And I was just, I was clueless. I didn't know what any of this stuff was. I didn't understand what was going on with anyone. And so unfortunately off the bat, I was looking at all of the differences. There was, I wasn't looking for any similarities. Um, and so I just felt like I didn't belong and I felt like I didn't belong on the outside. And so now to be in here in a place that I really don't want to be, but to not even fit in in rehab, I was just like a mess. I'm just, you know, so it, things got a little bit worse before they got better. And unfortunately, uh, I was introduced to some harder substances in rehab. And I, there, there was this running theme in my life all throughout my, my life, my childhood, where my, the, the solution for everything was like, oh, she has anger issues. She needs help. Oh, she, she needs to go see a therapist. I'd break up with a boyfriend and I needed to go to therapy. I remember there was a girl bullying me like relentlessly in high school. It started online, was going on for months, didn't do anything about it. Then it started in school. Then she was poking at me in class and it went on for months and months and months. And one day I had enough and I, I clipped her right in the jaw, turned around and walked to my car and left school, got suspended for three days. My mom made me go into anger management for it. I had I had never been angry. I had never been physical. I had never been violent. Was that the solution? Absolutely not. Should I, should you lay your hands on anyone? No, unless it's self-defense. Um, but just everything called for some crazy reaction and it made me feel like something was wrong with me. But being in therapy or sitting with, this anger management counselor, I didn't feel like I belonged there. It didn't make like it just it didn't feel right. I knew that 
I don't know. So for a long time, I struggled with not understanding why my parents would do the things that they would do. And so I think I had this moment in treatment where I'm just like, you know what? You want me to be sick so bad. You want me to be angry so bad. You want me to have these issues so bad. And finally, I just had enough and I picked up this substance in treatment and I did it. And I'm like, here, now, now I'm a now I'm a junkie. Now we can finally like and it and it's so ass backwards, right? And it doesn't make any sense, but it's just at the time it was always, I mean, I, you know, I wrecked a car, I was put in the psych ward. I fought back against a bully. I was put in anger management. It was just like, I, I, it was a lot. It was a lot. And so when they pushed me into rehab and eventually did I need rehab? Yeah. But the first time I went, I wasn't physically dependent to any sort of substance. I didn't need to detox and I was in detox. I was in a detox facility for five days before I went into the inpatient. I should have went straight into the inpatient. I don't know why I didn't, but so it, it just, to me, I just, I broke and I, I had enough. I was fighting to do well for so long but I was being put in these places with these people that made me feel so small and so sick and so broken that finally I broke, essentially. I guess before we get into the rest of your story, because I know it didn't stop there, I do think that a lot of times what can stop people from bettering themselves in life is using situations that are horrible. Like I think obviously being bullied is horrible. You know, having the disconnection with your parents, I'm sure it wasn't easy. The relationship with your daughter, splitting up with your daughter's father, like all these things I'm sure was completely painful and rightfully hurtful in many ways. I think the problem becomes when people will use those events and say, okay, like I can just, I'm going to do all these things as a result of that. And then I'm going to point back to that situation to not necessarily point blame, but to say, well, this is the reason all of this happened. And I have my own experience with this, but with you, when in your life, because it seems like you're doing really well for yourself now, you just bought a house, like you just did all these, you've done all these things where you came to some level of acceptance, like, okay, like I am part of the problem and I need to stop feeling sorry for myself so that I can get better so that I can be the mother that my daughter needs and all these, like, when did that actually happen for you? So that would have been multiple rehab trips later. I really just did the majority of my treatment in California because that was the first place I went for treatment. Anytime it didn't, I, I did a lot of bouncing back and forth between Pittsburgh, PA and, and Orange County in California, um, mainly because I wanted to be in Pittsburgh to be sober and be the mom my kid deserved. But when things were not going that way or when I would relapse or when I would blow shit up and everything would hit the fan, I would run back to California to go back to treatment and I would leave everybody to kind of clean up my mess. So I did a lot of, of jumping around. Now, I, I had a couple inpatient treatment stays in Cali, a couple detoxes, lived in sober living, worked in sober living, worked in detox, worked in treatment, all of these things. Finally come back home to Pittsburgh years later thinking that I'm ready but I had no tools in my tool belt. I just happened to be in a scenario in a situation in Cali that was working for me at the time. I had, I was by no means prepared to come home to Pittsburgh and be a mom. So I come home and, and we can get into all this, but things hit the fan again. And for the first time ever, I'm in a position where I can't get back out to California. Nobody will fly me out, which I used to have people that worked in treatment that would fly me right out. They they were refusing, which I later understood why. Um, and for the first time, I was forced to go to treatment in Pittsburgh. 
And that was the first time that it worked for me. And I, and that was my last time in treatment. My first time going to treatment in my hometown was when my last time in treatment, which is ironic. Now, while I was there, we'll talk um, about this. We'll also talk about like what happened between Cali and Pittsburgh. Cause I know that like you came home and things got really slippery for you. Like, I think a lot, you caught like some charges from your family and stuff. So yes, like, what was I, going, I, yeah, I did. I did. Um, and so that would have been why that was the why I went this last time, because I was facing an ultimatum of go to treatment or we're pressing charges. So I went, um, my dad ended up pressing the charges anyways. Now, because I was facing charges, I wanted to do like the most of what I could. Right. So like anything that was offered to me, I wanted to be able to show as much as I could for the courts. And one of those things was after inpatient, three months of outpatient, um, obviously it's highly recommended. I recommend it to anybody who's going into treatment, but I was doing it because I didn't want to go to jail. Right. Or I didn't want to catch charges. So my intentions still weren't pure. I was still being selfish. Now I got really, really lucky. And here's where I'll answer your question. When I started outpatient, I met a therapist who absolutely changed my life. Um, it, she was just the biggest blessing. She travels the world now and does free therapy for veterans and their families. So unfortunately, She's not around anymore, but um, she changed everything. She changed the way I thought. She changed the way I blamed other people. She changed my whole victim mentality. And she did it in the only way where it would have worked for me. And so this is why, you know, when I tell people that I sponsor, this is the way I sponsor because this is the way it worked for me. Not all girls, this doesn't work for all people. But there are some like me that are just so stubborn and so stuck in self that you kind of need somebody who's a little bit more intense. And that's this therapist. Uh, we were sitting in outpatient one day. This is just one example of how she really, really changed things for me and just the pivotal point in my sobriety and my life in general. But we were sitting in group one day. And as you can imagine, you're seeing all kinds of different looking people physically, appearance wise. And um, there's probably about 12 of us sitting in this room and the therapist says, raise your hand and tell me what an addict looks like to you. And so everybody's raising their hand. You know, some people are saying bad, bad hygiene, or they don't have their teeth, or I don't know, they look homeless and people are naming all these things. And, and then the therapist says, she says, you know what an addict looks like to me? And she goes, her. And she points to me. And at this point, I'm still very sick and I'm like appalled. I'm like, out of all these people, and she's like, to me, a drug addict looks like her. And then she says, somebody like her, those are the ones who die. And I'm like going crazy in my chair, like ready to walk out of the room. And she's like, people like Abby are the ones we lose because they, they care so much about looking so good on the outside that they never get the help that they need. They think they're fooling everyone. And the only person they're really fooling is themselves. And she just kind of went into how, because even in my addiction, I still kept up with my appearance and it was really important to me to fool the world, fool myself. And she was the first person that was able to like break me down, like rip the ego and pride to shreds and then build me back up into like a humble person who was able to take accountability. And so the pivot was, was her and she is such an important piece of my story. Um, she was just the first person. She didn't lie to me. 
she said, you know, um, she was the first person, I don't know, she was the first person to do a lot. She had a lot of opinions that I had never heard before about people in my life, the father of my child and just dynamics that were happening. She was a really, really big, really, really big person during that time. So, so yeah, she taught me a lot. She really, truly tore me down and then built me back up. What were, just for context of the conversation, what were the charges that your dad had pressed against you? Uh, after I got into some really bad substances out in California, I had tried heroin out there, um, you know, and, and things really took a turn for the worst. And so when I came back home to Pittsburgh, I made an outrageous promise to myself, which this is just something that a lot of addicts do is, um, you know, try to justify things. And one of those things for me was I promised myself I wouldn't touch heroin and that I would only do pills. Um, and to me that was like, okay, I'm doing well. Right. And so the problem was pills were a lot more expensive and I couldn't keep up with that habit financially. I was serving tables at the time, but it just wasn't enough. And so I was taking my dad's checkbook and I was writing checks into my bank account and I was cashing them to my bank account. And I got away with this for a couple months. And, you know, of course, the whole time I knew he was going to find out eventually, anytime my dad called me, I got a pit, like I was waiting for it to be the call. And eventually it was my poor father went to pump gas and his car declined. And, you know, my parents are successful. They've worked very hard so that that's not something that typically would happen. And so he went to the bank and he printed out every single forged check and that's when he called me and gave me the ultimatum, go to rehab or I'm pressing charges. So I'm about two days out from graduating this, this 30 day inpatient program. And, um, they're doing mail call and they call my name and I'm like, there's no way nobody's sending me mail. Nobody's calling me. And they're like, no, this, this is you. So I'm like, okay. And I, I opened this three page typed disownment letter from my father, letting me know that like, I'm no longer their child and, They've put so much work into me that my siblings have suffered as a result and just just the way I have destroyed everyone's li life and that they were done with it. And um, yeah, he puts in this letter that he took me off their health insurance, just, you know, every way they could cut me off in the letter. It read that um, he feels sorry for my daughter to have me as her mother. And the final paragraph read that he decided to go through with the charges anyway. So it was. 32 counts of forgery, identity theft, and theft by unlawful taking, which was, I was looking at a minimum of seven years in prison for. So that was, um, that was like a really interesting way to leave treatment because I was feeling good. I was ready to get out there and really start doing well for myself. And when I got that letter, it just kind of sent me backwards. It sent me spiraling back to like, what's the point? What's this all worth? Why would I stay sober if I'm just going to face this prison sentence? My daughter's not even going to know me. Um, and I remember that day like very, very vividly because what I did was I held that letter and I ran around to like each rehab tech who usually they were sober themselves. So they'd been through things and I'd show them and I'd say, like, what do you think this is going to do to me? What do you think this is going to do to my life? Like, how long do you think I'm going to, I wanted somebody to just tell me what was going to happen, you know, which nobody could, of course. And then that, that situation in particular leads to how I built an incredible relationship with the higher power that I use today. That, that situation is what, is what did that, which was 
ended up being incredible at the end of it all. But it, that was a very, very rough thing to go through because obviously that that case took over a year. So I was over a year sober by the time we actually saw, went in front of the judge for that, which was probably a good thing for me. But did the charges end up getting dropped or did you end up like going through? Because it was how many felonies was it? It was a, a couple felony. Yeah, 32 counts of the three different types of felonies. So I think the biggest thing was I don't think my parents quite understood that even if they wanted to drop the charges, the state had already picked them up. I, they they didn't realize that's how that worked. So once I hit a year sober, I mean, this was the longest I had ever stayed sober. This It was really different. It truly was. And people could tell. Um, I had started speaking to my parents again a little bit. I was starting to see my daughter again. I was starting to pick her up and take her, you know, to Chuck E. Cheese or she'd come into the sober living and we'd build a puzzle, you know, whatever. But I was really, really, you know, I had a job for over a year. I was serving tables downtown in the city and um, I had got my car out of repossession mode. I had got my license back. So little things I was really working on. And, and my parents, I just think they didn't want to see me go away for that long, especially because my life was changing. So, you know, saying this, it sounds like, oh, you know, but this really took a lot of work and a lot of time. But by the time we went in front of the judge, my dad had decided to hire a lawyer on my behalf and fought with me. So my dad and I fought against the charges with a lawyer that my dad hired, which did I deserve that? Probably not. But he did. And we got 32 counts of those felonies dropped to misdemeanor theft charges by the grace of God. Um, so I didn't get any felonies. And yeah, we got them dropped down to misdemeanors. I paid my uh, parents back in full in the form of restitution. Obviously, I had major fines to pay as well, which was a great way to hold me accountable. In addition, I was on supervised probation for a year which was a phenomenal source of accountability for me at that time in early sobriety. The combination of the sober living, the accountability in there, knowing my PO could show up with a drug test at any given moment was a really, really big tool that I used in early sobriety because there were times where I was triggered. And I, ha and I will admit that knowing that I was on supervised probation and that she could show up any day really, really kept me from going backwards those charges kept me from going backwards. You talked about like in the thick of one of the most challenging times of your life, you found this connection with a higher power. And I think a lot of times people, when they're faced with situations like you were faced with, they fall apart and they just, they, they do essentially what you had done earlier in your addictive nature where you, you just throw everything away and you're like, what's the point? My life is going to self-destruct anyway. There's no point of even trying like, how did you like develop this sense of optimism and peace and compassion, despite the fact that the odds were incredibly stacked against you and you were in this, this, this thickness of darkness? Yeah. So I think what it came down to was I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I have to say, it was a major blessing being in the sober living at this time, because I was surrounded by so many women who were supportive of me. And that wasn't something that I had chose for myself. So I was very, very fortunate with that. But what was actually happening from the time I left treatment, knew that I was facing these charges. Um, I was every single morning, I would wake up 
physically ill and it was all it was all rooting from fear of the unknown not knowing what was going to happen to me i was physically throwing up basically every single day usually in the morning just so sick and so afraid and constantly going through the thought process of why am i doing this what's the point i might as well use why stay sober and fight through all these horrible feelings and just all of the fear of the future if it's not even going to be worth it. And the combination of being physically ill, going through that cycle mentally. And I mean, I was living in hell and I did, I did. I, I, I lived like this in the sober living for, I don't know, at least a month after I got out of treatment. And what it came down to was I just got sick of it and I fell to my knees. And it was kind of one of those moments where I was just kind of bawling and didn't really know where it was coming from. But I think at that point I had just like kind of given, given up. Like I just remember looking up and saying, you know, whatever is up there, if anything, at that point I had completed step one and I knew, I knew that there was something more powerful than me, but I just basically said, I can't carry this anymore. Can you please take this? And, you know, I felt silly doing it and I felt silly talking out loud like that. But that was really a moment for me that changed things only because I realized that I didn't have to carry it around all day, every day. And I realized that I, I'm not the one that controls what happens to me. Obviously, I can make the right decisions and I can help lead my life in a positive direction, but I don't have control over everything that happens to me. And it was just it was one of those moments that I was so tired. I got so tired of feeling the way that I was feeling that I gave it up. I gave it up. I handed it over. And then, you know, it wasn't like, oh, man, and then I was good. It, it took time. But I think as time went on, as days went on, and then as weeks went on, I started to feel lighter and lighter. And as kind of all the worry lifted off of me, I started to gain a bit of hope. Like then the hope came in. Then it was like, the life might actually be okay. Like I may actually be able to figure this out. And then I was able to start, I don't know, rebuilding my life again. And it really started with a lot of internal stuff, but even that internal stuff, I really couldn't work on with all of the other fears and worries that were in my head. So giving it up and then seeing the success in that, like it worked, right? Like I, I really was able to to move forward and not feel so heavy and not have so much worry. And so actually getting that result is what led me to explore a deeper relationship with a higher power. And I did. And, and then I started praying every day and, and, you know, one thing led to another. And now it's a very important part of my life, but yeah, that fear and that worry from that, that court case really built me a strong relationship with a higher power. You've talked about like, since the day you can remember, you've had these had struggles with anxiety, um, a lot of mental health issues that you've gone through from before, you know, going into the depths of addiction and enduring it. And then the aftermath of everything. And obviously you mentioned that one of the things that's helped you really stay grounded is not only the community of women that you were surrounded with in sober living, but also your relationship with God or the higher power, however you see it. What other tools have been helpful for you outside of those two things and therapy? What have, what other tools have been useful for you to, to self-regulate and to deal with some of the day-to-day -day stressors and, and mental health stuff that might pop up? So my sponsor was a big one at the time. Um, I was calling her nonstop. In, the, in early sobriety, my sponsor was writing text messages for me. I mean, I, I didn't trust myself so much so 
that my sponsor I, was like making decisions for me. Um, you know, so she was, she was very helpful. And that was, an, that was a, a good thing. You know, she taught me how to set boundaries. She would write up texts for me because I, I was so codependent with my mother that I, I didn't have it in me. And she would write up these texts to set boundaries and then I'd copy and paste them. And I mean, I really leaned on my sponsor. Um, that was super important. She helped me slowly make amends and not rush at things because there was something I was going to benefit from. If I fix this relationship right now, you know, take, taking my time, giving people space and them time. Um, she really helped me with navigating life, but also a lot of the, a lot of the mental and emotional stuff she was there for. So having somebody to call at basically any given moment was really important for me. Meetings were really important for me. I think it was a really good distraction, but also um, community is so important. You know, I think that's one of the biggest things I'll say even today. Like if I'm feeling funky in my recovery today, it's generally because there's a lack of community. And although, you know, I have my platform and I can speak on my platform, there's another piece of the equation that doesn't exist when I just speak on my platform. Um, and I really, really need, I don't know, just that in-person community of all of these people who are just like me and feel just like me. And, and so, yeah, meetings. And then honestly, too, really like just free time for me, it was like taking bubble baths, watching certain shows on Netflix in the sober living. Like those are some of the best. When I look back, I really, I really appreciated those small moments of self-care because I didn't do that in my addiction. You know, I didn't take care of myself. I wasn't putting masks on my face or conditioner and my hair, or, you know, whatever. So I was doing a lot of self-care stuff too. That was helpful. Today, like in present day, like what are some things that you do like on a daily or weekly basis to help like deal with anxiety, optimize your mental health and take care of your overall well-being? So more so recently, I'm getting back into fitness, which for me right now, that looks like well, it started with walking. Recently, I started running, which is really strange for me. That's just not something that I ever, I mean, I did cross country in middle school, but that's really not something I ever did. So that's been interesting. Um, it kind of feels weird just running, not from the police, but just because you want to do it. But that I have found to be really helpful, especially when it comes to anxiety, um, any sort of physical working out. Like for me, if I'm in the gym, I like like a really hard, intense workout that usually always will do the trick for me. Um, but I haven't been going to the gym much lately. So really running is huge. Um, music is a really, really big one for me, even if I just put it on at the house and I'm when I'm cleaning, but yeah, music, working out, running, um, a really big part of my life growing up was I was a competitive cheerleader and a gymnast and it was my, it was my entire life. And looking back, that was my saving grace when it came to my anxiety, because for whatever reason, I think it was just the consistency of knowing each week that I was going to go there. I knew what time I was going to go there. And it was just this, I don't know, just really helped my anxiety knowing each week I was going to the same place with the same women and the same coaches. But, you know, I got, I, I got really good and, you know, I did varsity. I, I was a varsity cheerleader. And so that was a really big piece of my life growing up and how I not even intentionally because I was young, but it, that's what was really helping my anxiety was, was cheer and gymnastics. So I think there's a, a correlation now, even if it's just with running, it's helping me in that same way that it used to when I was a cheerleader, you know, as much as I'd love to do that, it doesn't really exist for an almost 30 year old woman, but 
I still, I still really enjoy that kind of stuff. So physical activity, I think is super important. Being outside um, in general is really helpful. Walking the dogs. I will, I have two dogs. That's another one. They're my saving grace. Those two. So yeah, emotional support pet. And I know one of the big things that helps you as well is like your platform and, and being of service. We kind of touched on this at the beginning and then being able to share your story and to share your insights and everything and, and have the support through the community. Given your track record with addiction and how addicting social media can can be at times and how it can negatively impact you know mental health, anxiety, and all of that, like how have you managed to walk this path with social media without falling down? some of the same patterns that you fell down before. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a really big one. And I've tried to be very careful and very cautious of this when I decided that I wanted to, to attempt to do social media full time as my career, which for me in particular is, is YouTube as my primary platform and my primary source of income. It's scary um, because you have the side of it where social media can be simply addicting but then you also have the other side of it where this is actually where your money's coming from. And the more views, the more money, and it can be very toxic and it can be very dangerous. And not only do I not want to slip when it comes to my addiction or my mental health or my self-esteem, but even making a bad decision um, and posting something that I would end up having to apologize for because I'm so caught up in numbers and views. And that in the beginning was something that I, I did not want to mess up. And I'll be honest with you, not only have I had very useful conversations with other creators that has helped me and I do daily, like I have, a, I have friends who I, I touch base with daily, but therapy, therapy was so crucial for having this as my career, but, and also the mix of my daughter, um, that whole thing in general, just social media in general, the way it can affect me with with my past with addiction, but also it being my career and me having a daughter who sometimes appears on my platform, that entire realm of things was a big reason I decided to get back into therapy in present tense. You've been through so much, whether it be like the addiction stuff, the legal stuff, you know, troubles with relationships, troubles with family, stuff with your daughter, like your own mental health stuff. What's been the most like painful part of your journey to work through? I don't know why. Well, I know why, but honestly, my dad and we have really mended our relationship. Like we have a great relationship, but for some reason, as you can see, I just, I am like a mess when it comes to what I put my parents through. Um, I think it's the biggest struggle. Well, them and my daughter, the combination, I think with my daughter, I see her and I'm with her on a daily basis. So with everybody, the biggest thing for me is the living amends. There's nothing I could ever say that will ever fix or justify what I've done. Um, the literal only way to make it up to everyone is is to live well. Um, and you know, that's what I do. But when I'm with my daughter and when I'm a mom to her, um, I'm able to do that on a daily basis. And that is literally helping just heal us. And, and we did a lot of healing when COVID happened. That was actually really helpful for us when the world shut down and her and I were forced to, um, I was homeschooling a kindergartner and I never expected to do that. And that entire thing, our relationship, like truly took off and flourished, which was incredible. 
Um, and I see her a lot. And so those daily amends of just being a good mom is what gets me through there. But with my dad or my parents in general, you know, they're living their own lives and I still do see them a lot, but something with, with my parents and just with, with that, what I put them through, I think I struggle with the most for sure. And I, like I said, I mean, I truly do have a beautiful relationship with them and we've celebrated so many incredible accomplishments. And I mean, even the house, they're just very, very proud of me. And even my dad, I said, um, to him the other day because they're excited for me. And so because of that, I said to my dad the other day, I said, thank you for trusting that I can handle this, you know, by just being excited for me with everything I've done in my past. And he, he texted me back and he said, never a doubt. And it just, it meant a lot because wow, have I just put them through hell. So yeah, I think I definitely struggle with what I put my family through the most. It just kills me that I can't change it, you know? wish I could. Totally. I mean, I definitely relate to a good bit of what you just shared there. And I'm curious because I think, I think a big part of it is there's this disconnect, right? Where parents think that you're doing one thing or meaning one thing, but the reality is like what's going on is just so far removed from what they think. Like they think you're purposely self-destructing. You're purposely ruining your life or you hate them or you're not appreciative of them or whatever it is. In your situation, like if you could talk to your parents and they could understand, as soon as you said this thing, they would immediately understand where you're coming from. Like, what do you think they misunderstood the most about you and your situation when you were doing a lot of this? Yeah, I mean, there was absolutely a lack of like, and this goes all the way back to childhood. There was a lack of ever just checking on me, like just coming and sitting on the edge of my bed and asking how I'm doing. Like that never happened. That never happened. It was like I said, but it was always let's go to therapy. Let's go to anger management. But like sometimes I just wanted like a hug or I just wanted somebody to ask if I was okay or if there was anything I needed. Like I felt like there was a major lack in that. Uh, and I, I definitely think if they could have understood that sometimes I just needed their support that would have been helpful. But yeah, I mean, like you said too, just, yeah, knowing why I'm doing the things I'm doing, not because I want to self-destruct, not because I'm some piece of shit. There's something going on. There's an issue. And, and I just needed help finding the right professionals to address what was happening with me because, you know, before addiction, there, there was so much happening, right? There was, there was so much happening without the addiction, that needed addressed, right? That, that the addiction ended up taking over and, and that, that was my personal cure for it because I, yeah, you know, I don't know. And I know it, it sounds kind of silly because I'm saying that, you know, I needed the emotional things addressed and then they were trying to put me in therapy, but the timeline of it all just, I mean, I was like 15 in therapy. I hadn't, you know, I didn't really need it for anything. Or I mean, I, it did, it wasn't working there. I had nothing to talk about, but then, you know, you get to the point where I was 19 pregnant, moving out for my first time. And I don't know, it, it was just, it was a, a concoction of just not good stuff that just led to absolute chaos. Yeah. I mean, I definitely wish they, they, they understood that there was, there was a deeper level of 
of issues. And that is why I was doing the things I was doing. Um, I wasn't so, and I'll tell you what, this is another big one. This, this sticks out to me a lot. So one of my greatest memories is when I, the final time I moved home from California, I had bought a car while I was out there. So I had to drive across the country to go, to get home. And so my dad flew out to LAX and I picked him up from the airport and he drove across the country with me back to Pittsburgh. And um, I was sober at this time. I'd been sober for a little bit in California. This was the trip I would go home when I said I had no tools and there was no way it was going to work. This was that trip home. And and we did a lot of really cool stuff. We stopped at the Grand Canyon. We did Sonoma. We just, we, we saw some really cool stuff. And it's to this day, best ex- my dad's a musician. He's really, so we stood on the corner of Winslow, Arizona, and we listened to Take It Easy by the Beat or the Eagles. Like we just had a phenomenal time. But on that trip home, there were a whole lot of conversations because we had a whole lot of time. And a lot of the conversations I was talking about recovery and some of the things I learned and how good I felt. And and I did. I truly, every word I said to my dad, I meant. The problem was I didn't stay sober. And so in that letter he wrote me, there's this, there's a paragraph where he talks about how he believed me on that road trip and how he believed every word I said but unfortunately it was all a lie in his words. And that I think is one of the toughest things for me because none of it was a lie. I meant every word I said to him, everything was true. Every feeling I felt was true. Unfortunately, I didn't have enough education to understand that I didn't have enough tools to stay sober. And I didn't know that I wasn't quite. And so I, yeah, that would probably be one of the biggest things is I I wish he knew that I really, really truly was honest in, in every word I spoke to him. I unfortunately just didn't have enough tools to stay sober and to, you know, so a lot of times they thought I was lying to them when I really wasn't. So that would be a big one. A lot of times to really transform relationships with family members, like you're on the path of doing, it starts with having these really vulnerable conversations and hard conversations and admitting certain things. And then the other people and and you hope admitting certain things and there starts to create some level of, you know, emotional connection that maybe was at one, at one point lost, but now is coming back. Like what was one of those conversations for you? Like if, if, if any, to where you felt that it was super productive, like how did it, how did it start? How did it go? And then what was the end result? Mm, That's a good question. We did a couple of family groups in treatment that were very helpful like we did a couple relapse. Well, I don't know how helpful we did a couple relapse prevention groups together. Like my mom, my dad and I, and professionals sometimes whenever we had kind of like a third party in the room, whenever we were having those vulnerable conversations, that was really helpful because there was an advocate on my end, right? Because there was a professional that understood addiction. And so there were moments where, you know, the professionals could could kind of stop them or stop me and explain something further. And my parents hearing it from a professional, I think they were better able to comprehend, understand, or realize that this is, this is true, you know, whatever it may have been, whether it'd be a fact or a statistic on addiction or whatever, but they're more inclined to understand, respect, and comprehend when it was coming from a professional. So I think some of those family groups were, were helpful. And I think the end result for a lot of those was education on my parents said education on addiction. Um, when my parents, when my dad pressed those charges, my mom was kind of in a place where that was too much, too hard for her. So 
but she knew that he was trying to do the right thing. And really the last and final thing, that was their last attempt at trying to help me. My mom just kind of had to put her hands up and step back because she wasn't able to to set such harsh boundaries. So she just stayed out of it, which I, I, I give her a lot of credit for and I respect because I'm sure a lot of parents would want to intervene. Uh, shit, I know a lot of families that these parents split up over children who are addicted because it is just so, that's just how horrible this disease is in the way it, it ruins relationships and families. And so I give my mom a, lo- a lot of credit for kind of just stepping back and letting my dad take this on and, and him even having the strength to still blows my mind every day. But um, yeah, so my parents, they started uh, Al-Anon and after they started Al-Anon is right around the time my father ended up pressing the charges. And so I think they just, they really, really learned a lot about the disease itself. And once they learned about the disease itself, they were able to learn ways to help somebody get sober, which was for them setting boundaries and cutting me off. Because before that they were doing things like if I wreck a car, they'd fix it. If I needed to go to treatment, they'd pay for it. If I, you know what I mean? And and sure, some of those things, everything was good intent, but a lot of those things were enabling. So it's funny, the timeline, it's like right after Al-Anon was right when those charges came about and it saved my life. It, it My dad pressing those charges was my dad saying, I'd rather see my daughter in, in prison than in than six feet under. It's truly the decision that he made. And so, yeah, Al-Anon, another big one. Talk to me about your relationship with your daughter, like the good, the bad and the ugly from the time where you got into sobriety, like what were, what were some of the hardest things to come to terms with as far as your relationship with her and like, how did you, I mean, you mentioned that you had a lot of time with her and you, you worked on a lot of things with her, but she's also very young. So what did that all look like? The first time I ever went to treatment, when I finished that inpatient stay where I wasn't sick or detoxing, whatever, when I went into the outpatient part of that program, I met a therapist and I was so broken. I was so sick. And I knew that I couldn't really make any decisions for myself, um, at least good decisions. And so I was at this point in my sobriety, very newly sober, where I was allowing this licensed professional to essentially make decisions for me. I'd ask for her opinion and whatever her opinion was is what I would do. And her opinion for me was to give my half of my custody to my mom and dad while I was getting sober in California. So when the father of my child and I split, we just did 50-50. We didn't go through court or anything. We just decided 50-50. And when I was out there, I wanted her to have a relationship with my parents. I, I did grow up in a, you know, in a beautiful home. We were very fortunate. My parents, I, I wanted my daughter to, I was afraid if she was only with her dad, she wouldn't have a relationship, you know, you get it. So um, I, I listened to the therapist and I, I handed my half of the custody over to my mom and dad While I was in California, the father of my child did not agree with this decision. He didn't think I should do it. He was very angry with me when I did it. And honestly, if I would have known how difficult it would be to get her back, I probably wouldn't have done it. Now, even with that being said, looking back, it is one of the best decisions I made in early sobriety, in addiction, you know, whether the whatever the case, I was sick. I didn't have a very good or a clear thought process. And in this truly to this day, I, I say it is one of the best decisions and most selfless decisions that I ever made. So I hand my rights over, right? So fast forward, 
a little bit of time goes by, I come back home, I get out of treatment, I'm doing well. So after we started building the relationship while I lived in the sober living, which was just me picking her up for my mom, taking her places, doing things with her. Once I got my first apartment, which was a little tiny loft, it was a studio apartment. Um, she began living with me. So my daughter lived with me for a, a year before I had any custody or rights of her. And that was a really tricky time because I would, I would, I would notice my ego like slipping in every now and again, because I didn't understand. I'm like, okay, so I have my daughter. I physically have my daughter. I'm taking care of my daughter. I'm co-parenting with the father of my child. But if, if something happened tomorrow, I have no rights of her. I have no physical, legal custody of her. And that was confusing and complicated. And I really relied on my higher power during this time, but it really just came down to humility and understanding that I had created this mess and I had to be patient enough, you know? And so I let a lot of time go by before I stood up for myself and talked to my parents and felt that I deserved, you know, whatever. So uh, this didn't happen intentionally, but on Mother's Day, I ended up regaining custody. Mother's Day of 2019, I regained custody of my daughter. And um, so, like I said, she had been living with me. So this was, you know, it was a really big adjustment for her. She was living with my mom and dad. She's already living in two homes. Now she's back with me. She was very, very resentful at me. And she was little. I mean, like four. She was small. And and you could sense the resentment. It was there. She was angry. And if you ask her um, then or even now, do you remember any of this? this, this is what she, from my addiction specifically, she says, the only thing she remembers is just that mommy was gone and she doesn't, and she didn't understand why. And she was, you know, it it hurt her. And she's told me that. And so that's the only thing she remembers is me being gone, which is obviously incredibly sad, but yeah. So, uh, you know, she was real resentful at me. I just continued to be the best mom that I could be. I continue to rely on God. I would pray every night, like, God, I'm just going to keep doing this. I'm going to keep doing what I'm supposed to do. If anything happens, or if you give me a sign to step up and do more, I'm ready for it. You know, whether that be step up and uh, tell my parents, I think I, you know, I'm ready to regain rights or, you know, take on more time with her, whatever that looked like. I was willing to be there for her however she needed me. And then COVID hit the world shuts down. And now we're literally just her and I are stuck in the house 24 seven. Like I said, you know, I'm, she's in kindergarten and and I'm doing that with her and I'm her teacher and just all of these changes. But as a result, our relationship just like really, really, really thrived during that time. We just, again, I mean, the same thing with my parents, it, it just lived, nothing can do it like living events, does it? Nothing can do it like living every day is the person that you, that you want to be, that you are, that you promise to be. And that's what it was for my daughter too. And so there was nothing that could do that, but time. And so it took a lot of time. It took years. Um, now our relationship is just incredible. She's my best buddy. I'm her mom first and foremost. I'm not her friend. You know, uh, my job isn't for her to like me. My job is to, um, teach her right from wrong and help her make good decisions and take good care of her. And so I'm not, quiet or shy about my addiction. My daughter knows everything. She's incredibly educated. She came to my home group with me every week for a full year. So she kind of grew up in the rooms. Um, she get, if you ask her like what AA or what meetings are her description of it, she'll say 
all of these people, they all come and they hang out together because they all have the same problem and they all feel the same way. And after they come together and they all talk, they suddenly feel better. And I'm like, that's basically what it is. So yeah, you got that right. But yeah, I mean, we we're just, we're, we're doing very well. I'm, I'm very, very grateful that I've been able to have a second chance with her and that she's given me that because almost didn't deserve it. So it was a lot of work. It took a lot of time. And, you know, and this, you know, I'm sure a lot of moms might relate to this. I think one of the hardest parts of this experience was you want them to forgive you and you want them to love you, but you still have to be a mom during that process. So while my child was resentful at me, rightfully so, I still had to punish her, right? I still had to reprimand her um, because the what I was not willing to do was parent out of guilt from my past and then raise, you know, whatever, uh, some spoiled or just entitled or which I was a little bit entitled and spoiled, I feel like. And so, you know, I was an only child, basically, my siblings were already off to college and my mom was studying for her doctorate while I was in high school. So that was a big thing. She was just not around. And she parented a little bit out of guilt and she would get me you know, items, physical things to make up for it. And, and so that it was another really big thing was I wanted to ensure that I didn't parent out of guilt from my past. And so that was a really tricky thing to punish her and still have to be a parent while she was resentful at me. I think that was the hardest part. I mean, I would just sit, I, I had so many nights where I'd cry in my closet and ask God, am I, is this right? Am I doing this right? Is this what I should be doing? Cause it feels horrible. Um, but looking back, absolutely. I mean, she, I'm very proud of her. She's, she's an awesome little girl and she has respect for me, which is important. Right. But I also owe it to her to continue to stay sober and live a good life and be a good mom to her. So it goes both ways. Everybody has their responsibilities, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, so obviously a lot of healing has been done and you've worked on things with, with your daughter, you've worked on things with your parents, and those obviously still are, are challenges for you today. Are those two the, are those the, the main two things that, I mean, if you were to say that keep you up at night, or do you have other like limiting beliefs or negative thoughts that you're constantly dealing with? Yeah, so I'll be honest, the motherhood stuff, I am fortunately in a really good place with, like, I don't currently have any struggles in that regard. You know, we did come a really, really long way. It's been years, obviously, um, you know, this April will be six years by the grace of God. And so I I've really had a lot of time to, um, I don't know, just kind of figure this out, figure out what being a sober mom looks like for me. And so I don't deal with much. I don't really deal with, with much when it comes to motherhood. Um, yeah, I mean, even my parents in the relationship, I, I really can't even say it keeps me up at night. And that I owe to God. I just, I, th- I I talk so much to God, especially at night that I think there, I just get, you know, a lot of peace comes over me and I'm grateful for that. I think that there's a little, if anything, it's guilt that, that creeps up. I would say guilt. I mean, and, and really it's not even all because of my addiction. A lot of the guilt stems from just having my daughter so young and not having life figured out before I brought her into this world. I think that more guilt comes from there than anywhere else, but addictions within that, right? Just having her before going through addiction and hard times and not being financially stable and not having a career in place, or, you know, she's eight years old and and we've moved, this is our third move. And, and thank God each move's been 
better and, and we've been in a better situation and now here we are in a house and and that's why this was this was my goal you know i'm i'm better late than never i'm grateful that i did it but just to own a home in this district where she has so many friends and plays sports and gets good grades and it's a wonderful community and that's all i've ever wanted to be able to provide her and i wish that i could have had it all set in stone before i brought her here but Again, better late than never. And then there's beauty in it too, right? Because she's been able to be a part of all of this. Like her and I, there were so many nights where we prayed before getting approved for the house, praying that that it happens. And so we've got to enjoy a lot of these really, really huge life milestones together. So there's a plus side to it for sure. You know, before we know it, we'll be probably sharing clothes. So there's there's perks to getting pregnant at 19, but it's not ideal. And yeah, if anything keeps me up, it's probably that more than anything. But like I said, addiction is kind of within that that equation anyway. So knowing what you know now, you've been sober, like you said, you know, for what, like five and a half years and you've been through a lot. You've, you know, gone through multiple stays at rehabs. If you had like two minutes with yourself day one out of rehab, what would you say to her? Well, that's a crazy good question. Um I think the biggest thing would just be, I mean, it sounds so, so surfaced and obvious, but I mean, I would really just let her know that it's all going to be okay. And it's all going to work out because it, it feels like life is over, you know, it like truly does. And so if, yeah, I think if I could just let me know that it's all going to work out eventually and to just keep going, but you know, I did that. And I, I give myself a lot of credit for that because I did that without hearing it from me. But I, yeah, I, I, I really don't have anything else. I, I think the reason I struggle with it is because all of that unknown gave me so much good. Like it just, it built my relationship with a higher power. It gave me this blind faith that I didn't have before that, that I still have today. You know, it's just like, I gained so many tools from all of that unknown that I don't think I would want me to be able to, yeah, I don't know. I think that's why I'm struggling with coming up with an answer because there was, there were so many benefits within not knowing, you know, I, I got a lot out of that. But get, but going through everything you went through and going to, to rehab multiple times and losing everything and then not having custody of your daughter, like, was there ever a moment where you thought like things aren't going to be okay? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I... I just didn't want to be here anymore, but I was too afraid to actually not be here anymore. So I was just kind of stuck in this like gray space of just like, I don't want to be here, but I'm not willing to do anything about it. So I just was here and numb. Well, Abby, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for your vulnerability and for sharing your story, your insights, your wisdom. I think people are going to connect with you really well and get a lot of value out of the conversation. If people want to follow along on your journey, if they want to connect with you on social media, uh, where's the best place to do that? Yeah. So YouTube is my primary platform. I, I try to keep it easy. So all of my platforms are just my first and last name, Abby Fickley. So YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, you can find me in all those places, threads. Um, but yeah, I, I'm primarily on YouTube. I post a lot to TikTok and Instagram as well though. So you can definitely find me there and it's, it's been a privilege to be here and I appreciate the conversation. There were some really, really good, really, really good questions. So I really appreciate that. I appreciate the challenge. You got it. And thanks again for coming on. I'll be sure to link 
um, your socials and stuff in the show notes. And, um, you know, thanks again for coming on. Great conversation. Yeah, it was awesome. Thank you again so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.